0: Hey, we're glad to have you here with us today at One Chapel. We're a church in Austin that helps people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. You can learn more about One Chapel and the things God is doing here at onechapel.com. Now, here is this week's message. You know, we are now at the end of our series. We're in the final installment of the study we've been doing in the book of James and We've seen over and over again throughout the last few weeks as we've gone through this letter to Jewish Christians scattered throughout the the known world at that time that this book is one of the most practical books in the New Testament. It's dealing with such pragmatic topics And it is uh, something that has real life application and it has a a, a very kind of plain spoken, if not blunt sort of way that James talks about these things. It really is a how to manual for the Christian life. If you missed any of those, you can go back to onechapel.com and catch the podcasts of the last several weeks. And so today we're gonna get down to one of the most challenging subjects that there is. Our money. And, and it's an incredibly personal subject, right? And, and requires a respectful tone and just the right balance of sensitivity and severity. And so it reminds me of uh, the one pastor who stood before his congregation and he said, I have bad news and then I have good news and then I have some more bad news. And the congregation got really quiet, kind of like you're doing right now. The bad news is the church needs a new roof, the pastor said. The congregation groaned, but then he said, The good news is we have enough money for the new roof. A sigh of relief was heard rippling through the gathered group, and finally he blurted out, The bad news is it's still in your pockets. (laughs) So often... When a pastor speaks about money, it is misinterpreted. Like uh, after worship one time, a little boy told a pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. Well, thank you, the pastor replied, but why? Because my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. (laughs) That's a good one. There is no such misunderstanding with the Apostle James. James he is clear. He is to the point. He is a straight shooter. And so he once again in this chapter begins to meddle in our personal business. And he's challenging our motives, challenging our actions, and challenging our humility in the way we deal with money. And so I want to read this Chapter together. We're gonna to just read the first six verses in chapter five. And so let's pray over this as we begin. Father, let the entrance of your word bring light and life to us. We are attentive, we are willing, we are open. Have your way in us and give us wisdom from your word. And, and we receive now the grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. James chapter five. Verse one says, now listen, you rich people. <laughs> now, as soon as I say that, a bunch of you are like, oh, he's not talking to me. <laughs> it's not true. You are among the richest people on the planet. You are in the top 1% of the richest people in the world because you live in America. No matter how much you make, there is something that is being said to you in this chapter. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Hallelujah. (laughs) It's a pretty strong word. Obviously here James is talking about the issues of money and how as followers of Jesus, we are to handle our money, how we manage it. Now, many people believe that the Bible actually teaches that it's wrong to be wealthy. It's not true. They think the Bible says that, the, that money is the root of all evil. When in reality, in the, one of the letters to the Thessalonian believers, Paul writes, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money. The love of money is the root of all evil. At the end of the day, money is just a tool. It is a tool, but it can be a test as well. It can be a way, I I, I tend to believe that money is a magnifying glass. It just magnifies who you actually are. If you were generous before you got money, you'll be more philanthropic. If you were bitter and greedy before you got money, you'll be worse afterwards. I think it's just a magnet. It's kind of like alcohol. You know, people drink alcohol, and then they, you, you, they say things they never say. They, they become who they really are. That's what, mag- that's, what, that's, what, that's, what, that's what money is. It magnifies this. And so here's what I want you to get, though. The point is God is not opposed to wealth. In fact, many of the people in the Bible were extremely wealthy. Think about this. Abraham was, was probably a multimillionaire, in our terms. Um, Job was the wealthiest man of his time. You think about Day, King David and Solomon were both the wealthiest men of their time. Joseph of Arimathea, the man who gave Jesus his new tomb, was extremely wealthy. He was also a good investor. He knew he'd get to use it again. You you see, God is not opposed to wealth or rich people simply for being wealthy, but God is very much opposed to the misuse and abuse of money, of wealth. God wants us to use our wealth wisely no matter how much or how little we have. It was Martin Luther who said, There are three conversions a person needs to experience, the conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. It is worth noting that money is such an important topic in the Bible that it is the main subject of nearly half of the parables of Jesus. In addition, think about this, one in every seven verses in the New Testament deals with this topic. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 verses on faith, and more than 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possessions. In fact, 15% of everything Jesus ever taught was on the topic of money and possessions, more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. Why such an emphasis on money and possession? There's a fundamental Reason. It is the fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and how we spend and handle and manage our money. There's a connection between our spiritual lives and money. It is one of the major things that grip our hearts and cause us to become idol worshipers. It creates idolatry in our hearts. And so here in these verses, James is hitting this area of wealth pretty hard. And he mentions four considerations for becoming wise with your wealth. And I want to I cover each of them. The first key issue that James talks about is number one, the, the accumulation of wealth. Everybody say accumulation. accumulation. <laughs> the accumulation of wealth or how I Save it. Verse three says you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Have you ever witnessed a hoarder? I mean, have you ever ever watched one of those shows on hoarding? Oh my goodness, It it is crazy what people are able to do when they get too attached to things. James says you've hoarded wealth. In other words, he's saying one of the common abuses of wealth is hoarding. Now James is not simply talking about savings because savings is actually has a legitimate place in Bible teaching. God encourages us to save money. What James is referring to is the getting of more and more money simply for the sake of getting more and more money. So you can have it, so you can control it. When you get right down to it, what James is talking about here is selfishness. Selfishness. Accumulating money just for the sole purpose of spending it on yourself. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, I don't spend any money on myself. My family uses it all. <laughs> Here's the deal. James says, stop it. Stop hoarding. Stop, stop using all the money on yourselves. Stop hoarding your money. That's the wrong way to accumulate wealth. We're going to look at what the Bible describes as the right accumulation and, how, and what it looks like. And we'll use several passages from the Wisdom Book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21.20 says, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Proverbs 30.25 says, answer creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Now, what is this principle? It is the principle of saving. Did you know that the average American only saves 4% of their income? The average European saves 16% by contrast. And the average Japanese person saves 25% of their income. That's amazing. Now why do you think we save so little here in America? I think it is because, I think it is because we live for today. We live for today. We don't think about what's coming in the future. We're the now generation. I, wanna, I want it now, whether I can afford it or not. I use my credit card, I use whatever I need to get what I want now. And so the question really is why is saving so important? Well, the reason the world saves money, or the reason, the reason most people, those who do not follow Jesus, the the reason most of those people save money is for security. I want to be secure. However, the reason why you as a Christian need to save money is quite different. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. See, this, this is security. Security is found in God, the provider, not in how much you can accumulate. You don't need to have money in your bank to have security. But the reason why it's so important for you to save is not for security reasons, but for stewardship reasons. Everybody say stewardship. You see, you and I must save money to be a good steward of what God has given. That's what it's about being a good steward, seeing everything you have as what he has provided for you, rather than seeing everything you have as what you've provided for yourself and you might give God a little. And so I think this is really important. I've tried to teach my five kids this principle. Now, in the, in the name of full disclosure, I, I, as a pastor, as your pastor, I very often have to get up here and speak from the scriptures about things that I personally am not that great at, right? And so, and so I teach my kids this, these principles because I think they're right. Here's the Parsley family idea. Tithe 10%. What's tithing? Tithing is a, a, a 10%. That's what the word actually means. Everything that comes into me, my house, I give the first and the best to God, You know why I do that? Because it is a statement that I trust him. It is a statement that I trust him. And I think the second 10% should go to savings. And you should save that way all your life. That's why I tell my kids, I have been awesome at the first rule, not so good at the second rule all the time. And so there's a a thing that I believe about this 10% tithing, 10% saving, and I'm not talking about blowing your savings on a couch because you saved up enough for a couch. I'm talking about making it a lifestyle that you're going to live on less. You're going to live within your means. 80% to live on. This is good stewardship. To give your first and best to God, proclaiming your security in him, Then saving 10% and as you accumulate, something profound happens. You start to have money to do stuff with because you've been a saver. You begin to invest. You begin to do things that you couldn't do if you spent it all. That makes you a good steward of what you've been given by God. And then when I save, I can use my money more wisely Proverbs 21.20, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. We just read that. When I save, not only do my spending habits become less impulsive, right? But I'm also able to help others in need. That's what God's really interested in, is that I'll be about his business, what he's interested in. And when I don't save, I'm... Less inclined, I'm less capable, I'm less able to help other people when they're in need. When you get right down to it, that's a major principle of the scripture. God wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. It's found in Genesis 12, it's called the Abrahamic blessing. God chose Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you in order to bless the nations of the world. That's our calling. Here's the wisdom. Saving money makes me more resourceful so I can be generous to those in need. And understand me, it's not only that you can be generous to those in need, God is interested in that, but you can can become more resourceful, more nimble, more adaptable to whatever the conditions are around you because you've saved. You can take advantage of things. You can take advantage of opportunities that you didn't know were coming because you were saving for it. That's what we're trying to do at One Chapel. We don't know when God will give us the opportunity to plant more campuses, but we keep saving. We keep, we keep trying to be good stewards of our money. We try to run lean as a church, and we're saving, we're preparing, because you never know when God will give you an opportunity to buy an empty church building. Which is what recently happened. Don't get too excited, it's not for you. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> sadly. But you are going to send some people to make sure that we, that we take care of a church building that was built by people who God was doing something in. And instead of it becoming an Italian restaurant, it's going to continue to provide opportunities for the gospel to be planted in that community. It's pretty cool. I'll tell you more about that next week. There's a second issue, all right? So that's, that's accumulating wealth. The second issue that James talks about is the issue of the appropriation of wealth. Everybody say appropriation. appropriation. The appropriation of wealth or how I get it Verse four says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. In other words, what James is talking about here is don't use dishonest means to rip people off. <laughs> don't take advantage of people. How do we do that? Well, if, you charge you, if, you, if I charge you too much for a product that I'm selling, that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. If I sell a used car to you and don't tell you about the major repairs that are required, that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. If I cheat on my taxes, then that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. It's getting quiet in this little (laughs) Methodist church. If I waste time at my job and I'm being paid for it, Right, then that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. See, God is not only concerned with what we get, but how we got it. How did you get it? Because that has to do with something that happens to others. Look at how the scripture describes the right appropriation of wealth. Proverbs 13, 10 says dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. You know, in the book of Proverbs, at least six or seven times, Scripture teaches us, don't get involved in get-rich-quick schemes. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. In other words, easy come, easy go. You make it quick, you'll lose it quick. Proverbs 14.23 says, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 12.27, the Good News Bible says, if you're lazy, you'll never get what you're after. But if you work hard, you can get a fortune. See, over and over again in the the wisdom book of Proverbs, the scriptures teach the value of hard work. Everybody say hard work. Hard Hard work. If all you're doing is talking and dreaming and trying to come up with some sort of get-rich-quick scheme, it will only end in disaster for you. Here's the wisdom, what matters to God is not how much money I make, but how I make it. It's not just about how much money you make, it's how you make it. What happens to others as you're doing it? He's interested in your internal motives about how you make money. And that leads us to the third issue that James talks about, the allocation of wealth. Everybody say allocation? Allocation means how I spend it. Verse five in James five says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. What does that mean? What James is talking about here is the more money I make, the easier it is to waste it. The easier it is to waste it. The message Bible says it this way. I love this. It says, you've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. We tend to say things like, I'm worth it. I can afford it, so why not? But listen, One Chapel family, just because you can afford it doesn't mean you ought to buy it. There's more at stake here. That's what James is saying. Don't waste your money. What does the Bible say about the right allocation of money? Proverbs 21, five says, the plans of the diligent leads to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. What's he talking about here? He's talking about planning your investments and planning your spending. Being intentional about it. Trying to make sure that your, your money and your possessions are going into the areas you want it to go. Did you know that the number one reason for financial pressure is not that we don't make enough money? In fact, every economic level, right, from the richest to the poorest, are convinced all they need is about 10% more. <laughs> all the statistics say this. The number one cause of financial pressure is spending unwisely. The number one cause of financial pressure is spending unwisely. Proverbs 27:23 says, riches can disappear fast, so watch your business and interest closely. Now, how do you watch your money or keep track of your money? One simple word, it's called a budget. Even as I say the word, some of you are like, you cringe at the word budget. So many people don't want a budget. They don't want to work off of a budget, but it can be so helpful. In fact, I'm convinced it can save a marriage. I'd like to introduce you to someone that has really helped Amy and I in this regard, helped figure this out. His name is Mr. Budget. <laughs> Mr. Budget, it's so awesome to have Mr. Budget part of our family and part of our marriage. When, when Amy comes to me and she says, Ross, we, we need this or we need that or we need these things, I, instead of saying no or trying to figure it out myself, I just say, well, let's ask Mr. Budget. And we go ask Mr. Budget. And, if, Mr. B- and if, if she's really mad, she gets mad at Mr. Budget, not me. If Mr. Budget says no, he's the one who suffers, not me. He's a real blessing. And so you ought to st- start including Mr. Budget in your family plans. You can invite him in, have, have him work with you. I, I think it's so powerful to, to decide that, that you're going to have a budget, have a plan, have something you're gonna try to stick to. Even if you don't stick to it, you see where you fall short, you identify it. Because all a budget is is simply planned spending. That's all it is, it's planned spending. Here's the wisdom of it. Budgeting is telling my money where I want it to go rather than wondering where it went. It's telling my money where I want it to go rather than wondering where it went. And that's what God is saying about money. money. It's so significant when we understand the blessing of handling our money with a respect and reverence for what God is interested in. Because he's interested in something much deeper than you think. He's not really interested in your money because he needs it. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's interested in your money because it represents something so meaningful to you and me. Which leads us to number four, the fourth key that James deals with in this passage, the application of wealth. Everybody say application. Application means how I use it. Verse six says you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now here James is talking about how we use money's influence. How we use money's influence. Evidently in James's time just as in our time humans have changed little over the centuries. The rich were buying off judges and circumventing justice. If they wanted to take advantage of a guy, then they'd take him to court, talk to the judge, slip him a few bills, and then would get away with their own way. The New Living Translation says it this way, you have condemned and killed good people who had no power to defend themselves against you. See, with money comes influence and power. And even today, a lot of people use money to manipulate others. They, I've known of families where uh, one person is trying to control the family because they've threatened them with their, their will, you know, and they won't, they won't include them in their will when they die. We, 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 sometimes we try to keep our kids under control <laughs> by bribing them with an allowance. I'm not preaching against allowances. Well, I, I believe in allowances, but allowances are for training, not controlling. If you get used to controlling your kids that way, you will find them being adults and you're still gonna be trying to control them because it got in you. Trying to control how they spend, trying to control what they do. We gotta train them as parents and trust God to raise them. Do, do things that are, that are intentional and make sure that we're adhering to scriptural principles and then, and then trust that they'll get it and when they don't get it, nothing you do will be good enough. You can't control them and expect great results. And so James says this is the wrong application of wealth. Here's what the Bible says is the right application. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says it is possible to give away and become richer. It is also possible to hold on too tightly and lose everything. Yes, the liberal man shall be rich. By watering others, he waters himself. This is a biblical Concept, you see it woven throughout the entire scriptures. It is the blessing, it is what Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. And when you give, something really significant happens to you. Do you know there are more promises in the Bible related to giving than on any other subject? And you know, I think I think that the vast number of scriptural references about giving and about generosity should give us a clue about what is really significant and important to God. When you look at all these scriptures, the common theme about the right application of money has to do with people and eternity. The right application, what you apply your money to, has to do with people and eternity. And I think this is so important. It's not just you, I, don't, I don't want you just to think in terms of, of church or, or some kind of charity. No, I, I think the reason for the, the right application of money, for instance, in your family is to take care of people because God wants you to care for your family, right? So, so, so it can get off the rails so easily if money gets attached here and we start grumbling and complaining about providing for, for people. My, I mean, my, I've had five kids and it is shocking how fast they grow. I'm like, I am not buying them those expensive tennis shoes because they'll be useless in six months. But, but, but you, know what my, you know what my desire is? My desire is that my kids will be cared for, that they will have what they need, and that they will see God's provision as a blessing to them. So occasionally I do buy them the expensive tennis shoes. It's true, that's kinda how it works. And I think when you get that right motivation, something changes in God's economy. You're motivated by the right things, not the wrong things. In his book, I Talk Back to the Devil by A.W. Tozer, he reminds us with this quote, money often comes between men and God. Someone has said that you can take two small 10-cent pieces, just two little dimes, and shut out the view of a panoramic landscape. Go to the mountains and just hold two coins closely in front of your eyes. The mountains are still there, but you cannot see them at all because there's a dime shutting off the vision in each eye. He concludes it doesn't take large quantities of money to come between us and God. Just a little placed in the wrong position, will effectively obscure our view. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19 through 21, don't hoard treasures down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Treasure is like a magnet. It's a magnifying glass and a magnet. You're drawn to wherever it leads you. Think about those words, stockpile treasure in heaven. How do we do that? Obviously, I can't take money with me. I can't take things with me. The only way you could store up treasure in heaven is by investing in people who are going there, who you want to go there. And there are only two things that the scripture says. Think about this. Two things that the scripture says says are going to last forever. You know what they are? The word of God and people. His word will last forever. And people will last forever. And that's why we need to realize everything else is gonna burn up. Everything else is gonna be remade. New heavens, new earth, but his word and people will last forever. And so why is it so important for us to invest time and money in people and in the word of God going forward because it's the two things that last. Jesus told a parable that illustrates this in Luke 16, one through nine. He says, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, verse 10, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is an obscure parable of Jesus. But let's unpack it just briefly. Jesus is saying that when you use money and invest it in people who come to know Jesus, you're investing in eternity. You're making friends for eternity. That's the point of this parable. And if you kind of peel back the layers, you see that the shrewd manager, right, he took what was available to him and he made friends with it because he was in trouble So he wouldn't be out on the street, he made friends, and Jesus is using this picture so that the parable has a larger meaning about how we should use our money, that is, for the sake of eternity. Don't use everything just on yourself. Actually use what you have at your discretion for eternal dwellings, for people who need Jesus. When you do this, when you get to heaven, there will be people there because of you. Someone will say, I'm here in heaven because you gave to a missionary fund that caused a missionary to come and tell me about the Lord. I'm here because you gave. Listen, did you know that every dollar you give, the first 10% of every dollar you give goes to missionaries to give the word of God in places where it is not heard? This is significant for us because of who we are as God's people, making an investment in the word and people, I'm here in heaven, someone might say, because you, you gave towards a building fund and that building was a place that I came to church and came to know the Lord, I'm in heaven because of you. That's what we're into at One Chapel is being willing to give towards those things, towards the word of God going forward in our city and in our nation and around the world. Jesus says it right here, here's the wisdom he brings. He says, I need to use my affluence for eternal influence. I need to use my affluence for eternal influence. Now, have you? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Have you ever thought about who is going to be your welcoming committee when you get to heaven? Who's going to be there? Who's going to say, I'm here because of you? This is what Jesus is talking about. That's why we need to learn how to use the right application and give money generously to God's kingdom. I believe the Bible teaches that God wants you and me to be financially free. He wants us to be free of its control. He wants us to direct it. Now listen, if your finances today are a mess, it's okay, God promises over and over again, to care for us, if we'll place our lives in his hands. If we will place this financial burden in his care and follow his principles, he says, that, I'll take care of you. When you think about it, unmanageable finances are really a symptom of a much deeper issue, right? An unmanageable life. Priorities all out of whack. Trying to live without God's guidance. In, in not just the area of finances, but in other areas as well. If we try to live without this, these principles, the principles in the scripture, we're gonna get in trouble. Our time, our money, our relationships, our health, every area of life starts to go wrong. Unmanaged finances simply means misplaced priorities. We're putting physical things before our spiritual relationship. The starting point, here it is, the starting point for financial freedom. You know what it is? It's making Jesus the one who manages your life. It's putting Jesus in charge of every area of your life. The start to living abundantly by letting him come into your life and making him the manager of not just your money but your time and your home, the manager of your past, your history, your failures, making him number one in your life. That's what he wants today. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head. I want you to let God speak to you in these moments that we have together. I want you to think about how your own financial situation, and I want you to ask yourself If you have freedom, God wants you to be financially free. Which of these principles have you been violating or not following clearly? Have have you been saving money faithfully? Have you been making money honestly? Have you been spending money wisely? Have you been giving money generously? All these are principles in God's word to leave it out any one of them is gonna short-circuit the plan that God wants for you. It's, 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 it, God wants the best for you. Remember, he's not opposed to wealth. He is not opposed to accumulation of wealth. He's opposed to the wrong use of it. He wants, to, he wants us to put him in charge of our lives. Not only in the area of money, but in every other area. So I wanna lead you in a prayer before we come to the Lord's table. And we're going to come to the Lord's table as a way of bringing him what we have. You might say, well, Pastor Ross, I I have barely anything to offer him. I want to encourage you. He'll take whatever you've got, whatever pieces of your heart, whatever unmanaged parts of your life, whatever mess you're sort of entertaining, bring it to him. I promise he's willing to create a divine exchange for you. Bring it to this table. He is ready to share what he has with you. The bread represents the body of Christ. This is a body that was broken for you so that you could be healed. The cup represents the Blood of Christ that was spilled for you and for me for the forgiveness of sins to erase your past and heal you of your wounded yesterdays. I want you to come to this table and realize that he's got something for you and he wants to fill you with himself. Come and give him every area of your life today. Let's pray together. I want you to pray with me this prayer of repentance. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look have looked at your word today, we've seen where we've fallen short and so we repent. Please forgive us, please forgive me in the areas of our lives that we've fallen short. We, we need the power of your word to come in and change us in the way we see everything in our life, our finances and our relationships and our, our hurts and our, our past and our future. You, we want to make you the manager of our lives. So Jesus, come and begin to take over. Take over today. We understand there's a verse that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added. Lord, we want to do that today. We seek you first above everything else We pray for your guidance. We pray that you'll become the the one who directs our life, who directs our affairs, who directs our relationships, who directs our money, who heals us and restores us. Lord, we receive that. We thank you for forgiving us and giving us a new start today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find everything you need online at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages on your favorite podcast player, and you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 930 and 1130. We'll see you next time.